Okay, so now we are going to do a really quick uh, overview of the uh, like adoption history here in America. And it's going to be quick because we had a three hour long version that the universe decided was far too long and killed my computer in the middle of it. And it didn't save because that's a thing like damn you, Steve Jobs. So this is going to be a condensed version, but we will have all the citations and information if people want to read more reports on it. Um, Katie is a genius when it comes to this, which she says she's not, but I'm telling you guys, like she knows so, so much, uh, so much more than most of us, even than I knew kind of dealing with adoption and stuff. So she is going to give us, like I said, just a really, uh, general overview of kind of the history of adoption and this machine that has been built over time and where we're at now because of it, even though, um, some of the wording has been changed, the root of it is still very much there and we need to care about it. But the diamond is in the rough But the diamond is in the rough All of us just spinning, all of us just spinning So, alright Katie, right. teach us things. <laughs> Genius, I'm not, but thank you. Um, so, let's start late 1800s, and, and I'm going to breeze through these and we'll do references later. Uh, Charles, Loring, Charles Loring Brace starts the orphan trains. They became known as the orphan trains through Children's Aid Society in the late 1850s. And it's estimated up to 250,000 children uh, were carried from the east to the west in the United States um, between the 1850s and about 1929. So a lot of these were immigrant children who were out on the streets right. and they were just kind of rounded up because their parents you were working. Irish and Italian Catholic immigrants coming to the East Coast. There were no labor laws at this time. Their parents are working long hours. A lot of there's no daycare, you know, childcare system. So a lot of these kids are you know, left out to fend for themselves on the streets. And uh, so, the dis and also this is kind of like simultaneously, there's like a Catholic Protestant back and forth going on at the time. So um, these kids are put on trains, they are sent out West, and this is where we get the term put up for adoption. Um, so these kids would stop in whichever, you know, West town, Western town, they would be put up on a platform and then families would come and, you know, I want that one. I want this one for various reasons. I'm sure some families genuinely wanted, you know, a, a child to love. A lot of these kids were used for manual labors because you had farms. Um, so that is where we get the term put up for adoption. Uh, at the time, there's a guy named IZT Morris. He's in Texas. He started the Texas Children's Home and Aid Society. That would eventually become to become what is today's Gladney Center for Adoption. Um, so I'm bringing this up because Gladney Center for Adoption is a big part of today's industry. Um, he originally accepted children from the orphan trains, but he later pushed for legislation to stop the trains because he started seeing like a lot of the sibling groups were being separated. These kids are being used for manual labor. And he saw that it, it seemed like a lot of these kids were being targeted because they were Catholic and there was this, this want for these kids to become Protestants. Um, so orphan trains end late 1920s. Going back to the 1800s, you also had 
the Bureau of Indian Affairs begins to establish boarding schools. At one point in time, there were like 60 boarding schools in America. Um, it was a Protestant ideology that wanted to assimilate tribal children to the American way of life. So these kids had to learn about the importance of private property, material wealth, the nuclear family. Um, they believed that it was just necessary that they had to civilize, and I'm using air quotes, civilize Indian people by making them accept white men's beliefs and value systems. Um, the, the goal was to eradicate Indian culture. So what was the terrible quote? That was the motto for this? So in 1879, you have Colonel Richard Henry Pratt, and he wants to complete this assimilation. And his his motto was, kill the Indian, save the man. These children were taken from their families. They were given white names. Their hair was cut. Um, they had to change their diets. They were forbidden to speak their language. Um, and they had, to com they had to convert to Christianity. Um, when their families would resist these children being taken to boarding schools, um, their villages would be refused rations. So um, enforced colonization. And, and then later, this is all happening like in the late 1800s, early 1900s. By the 1960s, they do this social experiment between, um, it was the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Child Welfare League of America, where they decide that they are going to have these children adopted by by white families. So that's happening, and uh, it actually started in the late 50s and runs to almost it, into the late 60s. Um, so that is when, in the 1978, you have the, the um, ICWA, which was the Indian Child Welfare Act which we will discuss in a little bit. So this is a hundred years with separating Native American children from Native American parents. All right, in 1904, you have the first social work school established in New York. Um, in the 1910s, you have baby farming. So this is a time there's no childcare and uh, you have mother, you have widows, you have uh, mothers who have been deserted. You have prostitutes, uh, you know, various women who are raising children on their own, but there's no child care and these women have to work and there aren't really any labor laws. So this was much, like a bigger thing going on in England than it was in the U.S., but it still happened here. Um, and basically mothers were having to pay these, it was usually women that would have children come into their house and they were supposed to be, I think for the most part, a lot of them were taking care of the kids. But, but it was it, like a daycare, but for 14 but, to 16 hours a day and, because of the long no hours. Cause, yeah, because there's so, no labor laws. There's no regulation of how many kids you can have. Right. Some of these kids start getting sold. Some of these kids died in care. Um, so hospitals and maternity homes start getting involved in this and they actually start becoming like adoption brokers. Um, like a lot of the baby farms, they would actually advertise, um, in the newspapers. It's like if you <laughs> can't raise yeah. your child or, or care like for them, all then of this we will stuff is going on like in the find people who early 1900s. Um, then you have like the eugenics movement coming in. 
Uh, and this is, you know, building up to World War II and, and Nazism and all that stuff. So, like, early 1900s, you, you have all this eugenic stuff going on. And there's worries about bad blood and women who become pregnant. I think this is where a lot of, like, modern day, our, our caricature of single shaming, mothers. Shaming single mothers. And I stigma. think the eugenics movement is where a lot of this really started getting a foothold. Um this whole idea of women that become pregnant out of wedlock have bad blood, they're feeble-minded, and their children are... Are going to carry on that trip. Right. They're contaminating the gene pool. Um, so this is all going on in the early 1900s. So I think a lot of that had to do with... Now you start with like the secrecy. Records start to be closed. Um, so every adoptee their birth certificate is changed. Their original birth certificate shows who their the biological mother that birthed them and and the father, if you know some don't, but some do. Once they are adopted, that is filed away. In some states it's filed away indefinitely. In some states the adoptee can access it at a certain age. But the 20s and 30s is like the time when when all of this, it's a whole like secrecy thing begins. And the belief that you could, as long as the child was taken away from the mother, you could rehabilitate well, that's, their bad blood. that's after. That's oh, that's after up. eugenics yes. becomes unpopular yes. from Nazis. Right. <laughs> okay. So we, we still were fine. We still yeah. were fine with doing that. There's still, there's still this idea of like the, the, the mom's bad blood and the, the baby's bad blood. Um, and that was actually a quote from, it was a, it was a, uh, pediatrician at the time, um, Henry Chapin had said that it was not, not babies merely, but they needed better babies. Better babies were wanted because the idea was all these, you know, poor, low-class deviant women, deviant women were very fertile, but they were having all these like deviant children. So now we're World War II, we're in 1940s. Um, and Nazism, you know, there's a lot of eugenics stuff going on. Some bad branding for Nazism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, of course, like falls out of fashion. People are just like, oh, you know, eugenics, maybe that, maybe that was a we bad We don't want to go Hitler here. So yeah. we're going to. So now like blank slate theory becomes more of the narrative and the blank slate theory is basically once the child is detached from the mother, um, they are a blank slate and the adoptive family can basically imprint, create, imprint the, upon them. Okay. They can like rehab their, their bad blood, I suppose. So blank slate theory begins to be the new narrative and finding homes for kids um, now seems to be a means to build a family because you've got World War II's come to an end. For whatever reason, infertility rates skyrocket at this time. I've read here and there that potentially it was because of STDs that were happening Coming during back, World War II. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's just a theory. But, but now we've created a market and for right, the blank slate babies. The American <clears throat> dream. You know, everybody wants the house, the college, the marriage. And with the marriage, you have to have the children. And the 
marriages that don't have the children. Now it's like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you have children? Yeah, there's a lot of societal pressure to yes. create that nuclear family. So now you have the demand. You need the supply. Um, so this is kind of like a perfect storm is brewing leading up to the baby scoop era. Um, this is also a time where sexual mores are a little more, become a little more liberal, except you also don't have birth control access. So inevitably, you know, pregnancies young, happen. young women, teenagers are, are going to get pregnant. Backing up to the 1880s, we have Charles Nelson Crittenton. He started the Florence Crittenton Homes. He was an evangelical Christian, and with his vice president, Kate Waller Barrett, they kind of go like on a nationwide tour telling uh, other evangelical Christians that they believed mothers had a right to raise their children free from the scorn of society. They opposed institutions and the separation of mothers and from their children, except in extreme circumstances. So the Florence Crittenton Homes so they started the first maternity homes. Yes. That were and like an these, ethical model. Yes. These are the ones I I wish had been available to me and I wish we could go back to. I mean, they don't have to be religious, but this was what the church It was about family preservation. This was about family preservation. This was what the church was originally doing in the U.S. in the 1880s as far as like having maternity homes. Um, they were all run by church ladies and their, their point was, we're going to keep mother and child together, except in the most extreme circumstances. So this, this starts to change after World War II, you know, and, and Crittenton and, and Barrett have passed away and it gets passed down to, to the next generation. Um, now there's all this pressure of, of, you need to separate these young deviant mothers from their children because of all the, the social stigmas of the mothers are still deviants, but the children are can be rehabilitated, basically. Um, so the church ladies are pushed out. They're seen as outdated and unprofessional. And the social workers come in and they start to pathologize unwed mothers like never before. Um, so now we have the baby scoop era that goes from the late 1940s to most people will say 1973 because that was, you know, Roe v. Wade. And I personally feel like it extended further than Roe v. Wade, but you can see like an extreme drop in infant adoption percentages you know, around that time of Roe v. Wade. Yeah, and it still happens because the baby scoop era was based on this belief that women should be very ashamed of this. So this is yes. where you it sit, was you know, all shame somebody centered. goes to visit their aunt for nine months, comes back and is expected to live their life the way it was. There's, there's no right. baby. There's no evidence mm -hmm. of what she went through. And so that still does exist in kind of more fundamentalist oh, circles absolutely. that still have that pregnancy stigma but it was really hot during the the 40s right it 70s, was it was 30. nationwide it wasn't just like a religious it's like what you thing. do it, it's what you do well it's what white girls do this is what's going on because there's a big demand for white babies at the time and this is what white girls and adoption do. still hasn't been opened up to black families yet no at this point no so the baby scoop era 
is your 17-year-old girl. You get pregnant. You get shipped off to a maternity home, which was basically a prison. That's where you are kept against your will until you have your And you're punished throughout the whole pregnancy and not given pain meds during delivery. And all of this is told to keep you from doing this again. There There were women that were denied pain medication and they were told this will teach you a lesson. You'll never do this again. There are moms who were tied to beds. There were moms who never even knew if they had a boy or a girl, they never saw their child. And then they're told, they're, the, even their their communication to the outside world was cut off. They Their letters were redacted. People read their mail. Like they were incarcerated. Sure. Yes. Like they were inmates. They were inmates. So this happens for a good, like open nationwide for a solid And a lot of these years. women are still alive. And we were oh, talking yeah, about the fact absolutely. that like, to see this a class action lawsuit for this. I would love to see a class action lawsuit for these mothers. This generation of mothers, you know, nobody knows about this. When I started reading, I, I you're not taught about this in, in history class. You have I think no I've idea. seen a few references in movies, I don't see but this that's kind in, of it. I, I don't see this in any feminism, femi- <laughs> feminism. feminism literature. Um, yeah, there was absolutely no choice No, in, in this case. I mean, it was and forced I, I don't understand adoptions. why that's not like, talked about more often. But um, now what's happening in Black America at the time is that you have, you know, the... the White moms are being sent off to homes and basically being incarcerated. At the same time, like black families are being denied any any agency whatsoever. So you have, you know, if black families want to adopt, the agencies aren't going to deal with them. If you have a black parent that wants to place a baby for adoption, the agencies aren't dealing with them. Um, orphaned black children, were relegated to asylums and they were classified as juvenile delinquents in order to qualify for care during this time. Um, so it's like this institutionalized discrimination that's and, happening. And through that, organically, you have more kinship adoption, right. which has become kind of the model right. in communities of color. So because all these services are being denied, that just kind of became... The response is Been that for yourselves. It's, yeah, figure it's, it out. it's kinship care. You start having more like community involvement. 1960s, 1970s. Now some of these earlier born adoptees, you know, now they're, they're getting to maturity and, and the moms that were teenagers are now grown women. So now you... You start getting all of these organizations. You have Adoptees Liberty Movement Association. You have Concerned United Birth Parents. You have American Adoption Congress. And all of these groups are basically ways for adoptees and birth moms to not only find community, but now they are starting to demand they want these records unsealed. They didn't want these records sealed to begin with. Adoptees want to write to the records. The moms are saying we never, nobody ever made us you know, sign on to these. And why why can't they unseal those? Well, we know. Because <laughs> <laughs> what happens when they're unsealed? Well, yeah. When they're unsealed, people meet each other and they start talking. Um, so at the same time, you've got... Uh, and these are like the first search 
angels. These are these are the first, you know, you didn't have DNA at the time and, and they're denied records. So these are groups that start helping, like being able to find ways to search out family members and, and reunite have them. Reunion, yeah, yeah, have reunions. Around the same time, the 1960s, 1970s, you've got John Bowlby, who starts doing a lot of research on attachment theory and adoptees and, and birth moms. And let's go ahead. I should have already said this, but birth mom, because I know a lot of women are going to be, um, aren't going to like that name. And I understand why. And, and personally, I like first mom, but it's really tough because it's like, culturally, we've been programmed right, to know what a birth mom is. Like, I don't want to use the term birth mom. Right. But if I use anything else, like people. You like, have to explain it. And then, then I have people to explain go, it. Oh, you, oh mean, you mean a birth mom. Right. <laughs> right. So it's like, then I have to explain it. So just for the sake of, you know, let's, let's. Just clarity. Clarity. Let's but also with this. the caveat that they're better to terms. Birth mom, but I think Other terms should be normalized. I think there could be better terms to be normalized. Um, so you have attachment theory and so adoptees and birth moms really like start, re- you know, these, these theories and these studies start resonating with adoptees and birth moms. Um, so in 1978, we've moved really fast. You have President Carter, and he has a panel formed to create the Model Adoption Act. Um, it included like famous psychiatrists like Marshall Schechter, who had done like a lot of adoptee studies. You have Lee Campbell from Concerned United Birth Parents. These people are on this panel, and they come up with what would be this Model Adoption Act. Uh, some of the things that they wanted, they wanted open records for adoptees when they are adults, and they wanted a standard time frame for moms to sign away their rights at two weeks. So no more, you're not just taking the baby at birth, or you're not giving these moms, you know, a 24-hour window. Where they're they, highly medicated, they're right. exhausted from going through labor, like all right. these unethical practices. They say on average two weeks. They which, say you have, which we've seen in other I countries even, cuts down on the adoption rate quite a bit right. because in two weeks you do have time for the biological family to bond with the child and create that support system. Even if they were right. opposed to it, there's something about the child now being here that often will cause that to happen. Right. And so the recommendation of two weeks seems completely sensible. So two weeks, unless you is, are wanting more which adoptions. Which I think is on, personally, I think is on the low end. Right. Um, I think it's, that would be a lot more ethical than what we have today. It'd be like 12 more days than, yeah. than we have today. So that that is their conclusions with this Model Adoption Act. Now we have, we have my least favorite character step in at this point. So we have Bill Pierce, who was a former director at Child Welfare League of America. And we have Ruby Peister, who was an executive at Gladney Center for Adoption, which we, you know, talked way back, way back. It was the Children's Aid Society in Texas. Um, And at this time, I think it's still the Edna Gladney home, but it's now Gladney Center for Adoption. Okay, so... They get together and they decide that they need to form a group specifically to to fight against this model adoption act. They specifically do not want open records and they 
they find some professionals that say two weeks is too long. That that would actually be harmful. So um, it would be harmful to, to their bottom line, <laughs> as would opening the records because the lawsuits that would happen if right, the records were right, opened. Right. So um, they recruit adoption agency representatives, and then they start like this letter writing campaign of adoptive parents to basically kill this model adoption act. Um, since then. Um, National Council for Adoption, it, it was originally committee, it's now council, has become the policymaker for, how long has that been, 40, 40 years? For the last 40, 41 years, they, they are the policymaker in Washington, D.C. of adoption issues. So this is a collection of adoption agencies um, that have come together to basically you know, legislate all things adoption in the United States. Now, let's fast forward to the 1990s. Um, Teen pregnancies are at a 40-year record low. Abortion rates are on decline. Most people would be like, that's awesome. Like, that's good news. Um, The problem was these teenagers were not getting married. They're, you know, shotgun marriages were kind of a thing of the past. Now, I lived in the South, so the shotgun marriage was still happening, you know, in the late 90s. But for the most part in the country, that's gone away. And um, I think for our generation, that was that was kind of an achievement. And it probably would have been nice, you know, to have, have gotten, like, some praise for but that. But stigmatizing like, single parents is so fun, Katie. So, like, we can't just stop. Which, let's do some quotes. All right, I'm ready <laughs> for the quotes. All right, so this was from the Baby Scoop era, but, but you know, once I start, once I started reading more and more about, like, what was going on in the 90s, like, these quotes came to mind. So... One of the quotes from, from, and this is from the Baby Scoop era. It's a, a book written by Karen Wilson Butterball. And uh, in it, this is uh, from a social worker. The change of focus created a situation in which illegitimate births presented less of a problem because they served a valid social function, such as a supply of children for economically secure but infertile families who constituted a sizable adoption market. For the babies of unmarried mothers, both of whom were raised in value by their status, an unmarried mother is at a premium and her offspring is a desirable possession. I mean, that's baby market. That's what they're talking about. Unmarried motherhood is the mark, not of deviancy and degeneracy, but of victimization. It is the visible sign and outcome of a total pattern of inequality and access to significant resources and reflects the intent of the dominant majority to keep the poor in their place by ensuring that the life of the poor is hard. Illegitimacy is functionally useful to society. To eliminate it would be to eliminate the raw material of the adoption process, whose products are sought after by childless middle-class couples. Society encourages illegitimacy not as is generally thought by encouraging premarital sex, but by discouraging responsible parenthood. Raw material. Human beings yes. being called raw material. And with the discouraging of responsible parenthood, 
is what I feel like I experienced. It wasn't, for instance, when the boyfriend leaves, you tell the boyfriend I'm pregnant and the boyfriend leaves, everybody calls him a deadbeat. He's left his, his child, his family. With girls it, or with, with young women, it turns into now you're irresponsible for wanting to parent your child. Yeah. The responsible thing for you to do is to give your baby to people that are better than you. Yeah. We need you to love this child so much that you continue the pregnancy, get them to the starting line. But at that point, all you have is love. So it goes from all you need is love to bring this child to the earth. But all you but all you have is love now. And And that's the that's just that's that's not enough. Uh, On this side, you have to write what do you have love, and on this side, you have to write what do they have Uh, everything I don't have. Yeah. (laughs) So 1994, we're at our lowest. Abortions on the decline, and we're at our lowest teen pregnancy rate in 40 years. We have the contract with America with House Speaker Newt Gingrich, who calls for a return of orphanages. That was something that had been done away with for a century in the United States. Like, the professionals had had deemed institutions harmful to children. So, in the Personal Responsibility Act, um, cash assistance, uh, TANF, and uh, housing assistance would be cut off to young unmarried mothers. The money withheld from them would go to group homes where these mothers and their babies would be sent to be closely supervised. The federal money saved, uh, it would be diverted to orphanages when these moms, in effect, could not take care of their children without the public assistance that was going to be withheld from them. For their lifetime. Yes, that was if if you were, if you got pregnant at 18 or under, which you would were, have been you. Yeah, you were never going to be eligible for any type of welfare for a lifetime. The rest of your life, you get no welfare assistance. I cannot think of a stronger incentive for a woman to choose abortion <laughs> than that right. by someone who is part of the GOP, the family values, which, oh my gosh, and pro-life party. Right. Like that incentivizes abortion so much Moms for women and because babies are not families. First <laughs> oh, off, yeah, yeah. Hold get, on. Get the, yourself straight. The deviant pods or whatever <laughs> we're calling them, right? But everything about that tells a woman that like if I try to have this baby, I am left with absolutely nothing yes. if I don't have it's familial support. They're going to punish you. And so I have no choice but to turn this child over for adoption. Right. That's, so it's basically choose life or <laughs> yeah, we're going to we're going to totally corner you to where you have no real options here. Um, uh, so the Republican proposal in the House of Representatives, you had uh, this guy. Uh, he's oh, Robert Rector, Robert Rector of the Heritage Foundation, which is like one of these at, at the time. He had all these like conservative think tanks and you got National Council for Adoption, you've got Heritage Foundation, you got Family Research Council, you got Hoover Institution, like all of these, they're kind of revolving door think tanks and organizations. So uh, Robert Rector of the Heritage Foundation, um, he said that that they would cut off cash assistance and housing assistance to these to these women and their children. Uh, he said these moms would have to go to these group homes. They would have no walking around money for cigarettes, booze, and clothes. They're, 
what? Yeah, that's what they were definitely <laughs> so, doing. I mean, I'm not sure how they're getting booze, but I just so, picture Olivia Newton John in Greece for like at the end with the leather. That is all unwed <laughs> team moms, I guess. Well, and you know, we can go, let's, we'll go back to race. We'll talk about that too. Cause it makes me, I, I think a lot of, I think a lot of, uh, people of color were, were the targets of a lot of this. Um, so they wouldn't have walking around money for cigarettes, booze, or clothes. Some of these women like to dress their kids up. They would have to take parenting classes, finish high school, and have a curfew. The bottom line is this would be the only option for these women. So these teenage moms are going to be sent to these group homes, but then we're going to deny all welfare assistance to them. So inevitably, they, they will have no option. They're not going to have any option but to put to, their child up for adoption. To sign away the rights yeah. to their children. All right. In the 1980s, this is, you know, on the hills of the 1980s, we have the, the welfare queen stuff going on, like supposedly, like, you know, all this language that, that, it's basically these black women that are gaming the system by having children. or allegedly. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, but that's the undertone. Allegedly. Right. That's yeah. the undertone of right. what they're trying to make right. a caricature right. Of, right. of black women. What yeah, what a right. birth Resources. mother would be. Because, you know, welfare welfare is the way to go. I mean, if you're gonna yeah. I mean, Seriously, that's a really bad business. All model. you have to have I'm is a baby to get super shitty housing and yeah. be, trapped, <laughs> be trapped in poverty your whole life. Like, like no, that's up. it. That's all I got. Like, see, I don't understand. Like, the math does not work out. It does not work out. So, yeah, all so we're, all of this is happening in context of welfare queen 1980s. Mm-hmm. So I really think from from everything I've read, I think the major target. And it may just be my personal bias, but I think the major target was honestly black families. What was happening at the time with black families? You had the foster care system where it was 40% of foster children were from black families Mm -hmm. and they were only 13% of the general population. To me. Well, and the fact that suddenly they start opening up adoption for black families. For black families right after they create this caricature. Like it's but kind of before that though, I do have to say that they've already started to eradicate the black family as it were. Right. Um, when they were offering public assistance, when they do housing projects, any okay. type of public assistance, if there was a man in the home, you could not get assistance from your family. Okay. So they were creating the problem of single black mothers. They were serving single black mothers and then calling single black mothers a problem. So and it's just, do you know, it is a cycle. The stuff I was reading was they started contracting. You had this war on poverty in the 1960s, but then they start contracting the services once they start realizing that it's, it's assisting yes. black families. That yes. all kind of happens. Yeah. Then they change the, the mm-hmm. they change the um, dynamics. Um, so I've got some quotes. You have the the National Association of Black Social Workers that starts, you know, they've, they've seen what's happened with the Native American families. I mean, they've seen what's oh. happened with their own families. <laughs> All right. So in 1994, they had a more expansive document preserving African-American families that reinforced the 1972 position statement. It's, it wanted the stopping, they wanted to stop unnecessary out-of-home placements, 
reunification of children with their parents, placing children of African ancestry with relatives or unrelated families of the same race and culture for adoption, addressing the barriers that prevent or discourage persons of African ancestry from adopting, promoting culturally relevant agency practices, emphasizing that transracial adoption of an African-American child should only be considered after documented evidence of unsuccessful same-race placement has been reviewed and supported by uh, appropriate representatives of the African-American community. Um, so it, it really seems by everything I've read that honestly, I feel mm -hmm. like that, that the black community was the target of a lot of this. Um, Dorothy yes. Roberts was the author of Shattered Bonds and Killing the Black Body. And she said since its inception in the late 1800s, the child welfare system has always operated with animus towards people of color. Black families became the target of the child welfare system with the disparaging black welfare queen of the 1980s. Congress replaced the entitlement to welfare with block grants to states in 1996, which resulted in fewer families receiving assistance and subjecting them to oppressive regulations. Foster care had become a pipeline. Well, this is not Dorothy Roberts anymore. This is actually from Time Magazine. Foster care had become a pipeline to prison, but also because the history of separating children of color from their parents is intimately linked to American racial oppression. Yes. Uh, like slavery. Yeah. That's the so, separate kids from their parents. So you have all of this going on in the 80s and 90s. Of, of They build up, there's this building up of this evil welfare queen. Mm-hmm. So I just find it very convenient that in 1994, with this contract with America, that you have this multi-ethnic placement act. And at the time, there's 40% of foster children were black. The multi-ethnic placement act made the argument that transracial adoptions uh, needed fewer barriers. Um, it was in response to the ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, and the National Association of uh, Black Social Workers concerned that same-race policies had gone too far. Critics pointed out that minority families had been excluded from adoption services for decades and there needed to be recruitment. So basically, Black families had been told for, at this point, what, 30, 40 mm -hmm. years? Yeah, they were not allowed. You're not allowed. That we're, we're not dealing with adoptive parents from black families. We're not dealing with black children. We'll send them to institutions. You know, the, the black family is pretty much excluded. But now that supply was down, we're yeah. going to open it up and yeah. then, yeah, act like you're the problem and you've been the problem the whole time. Yeah. Like you, you didn't step up. Where were you? to take these children. When so, in reality, in black culture, that's who you said those kinships. Right. That like was that's, kinship here. Yeah, that, that, that we've already been doing it. So we just don't have paperwork. In 1994, it's basically, there aren't any black families to adopt these children. Mm -hmm. So we don't need the barriers for families of other races to adopt these children. In 1996, um, the inter-ethnic adoption amendment is added to the multi-ethnic placement act and it made it impermissible to employ race at all as a factor in placement. So basically 
Um, if you had a black family and a white family and they were equal in every way and there was a black foster child that was needing to be adopted, it became illegal um, for for these agencies to choose the black family simply because they were black. Um, so that's... The- so it became... Kill an Indian, save a man all over again, but now with the black community. Like, we can't pass culture down. We can't do any of that. We're basically still trying to colonize in in a different community now. I mean, looking at the history... They just have better marketing for the way they're saying it's it. It's really hard not to see it that way um, as, as cultural eradication. But the irony is where the... Them saying, where the black parents to adopt? <laughs> oh, but also, we're probably not going to pick you if you do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, During this time, the Child Welfare League of America, who has since apologized for their participant, I'm not, I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying they have apologized, acknowledged that they were wrong for their uh, for their part in the Indian Adoption Acts of the 1950s and 1960s. Um, they actually wrote a letter to the Department of Health and Human Services. They said, we are in complete disagreement with the Department of Health and Human Services interpretation of of these two acts as effectively disallowing any consideration of race in adoption and foster care placement decisions. This policy directly contradicts what we know to be best practice in child welfare. We strongly urge the administration to modify its position in order to avoid an inadvertent disservice to children in need of families. We support the core notion of LMPA. A child's opportunity for a family should never be delayed or denied based on race. But interpreting these acts as forbidding any consideration of race and making placement decisions, HHS has gone much farther than necessary. To say, as HHS has said, that even where two potential families are equal in all respects except for race, child welfare professionals cannot deliberately choose the family that is the same race as the child uh, is simply not in the best interest of children. Um, so you kind of have this, this battle at the time where one side sees, sees these acts as cultural eradication. And I, I don't know, I think the other side saw it as a way to get to the supply. I, I mean, I know that sounds crude, but... Raw raw material. Yeah, raw material. All right. At the same time, all this is happening in the mid-90s. You also have these think tanks that are, um, you know, publishing all these articles about all these things that that need to happen in relation to the unwed mothers and adoption. So in 1996, you have uh, from the Hoover Institution, The Pro-Life Dilemma by Frederica Matthews Green, where she's saying basically uh, crisis centers they're they're supporting women too well they're supporting women too well which she's such a fabulous pro-life feminist but she gets this so so wrong i know she has some really great quotes she really does does. but then this is just bonkers when i came across this it like i had to do a double take like what yeah this this really broke my heart um so it's quoted as for all the good crisis pregnancy centers do 80 to 90 percent of their clients about two hundred thousand a year 
eventually set up single parent households. Most of these mothers and their children soon find themselves on their own with no reliable means of financial support. Many end up permanently dependent on government welfare. If pregnancy counseling centers are to serve the best long-term interests of children, many of them will need to think beyond pregnancy and birth to finding each one a two-parent home. Um, and then the quote that just uh, really, really gets me is, mothers need the personal support and encouragement to make a life-affirming choice. But once born, that baby deserves a better life than welfare and single parenting can offer. Um, so that comes out of one of the conservative think tanks at the time. Then you've got the Heritage Foundation, Patrick Fagan. Uh, oh, Marcia, it's your time to shine. Fagan. <laughs> 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 Where have I heard that name before? No, Fagan, so, Fagan. No, so <laughs> I love how his name is Patrick Fagan because Fagan is one of the main villains of Oliver. Do you know? You know? Do you know Oliver? You don't know it at all. No, Oliver. He stole all the like, kids. Oliver Twist. Like he still. Like, so Oliver Twist. Like he basically is the one who like stole all the kids and made them pickpockets and like kept them like collected kids pretty much and made them criminals. So, so there's that. <laughs> like so Fagan. <laughs> So, <laughs> we have um, Patrick Fagan with the Heritage Foundation at the time, who is now a senior fellow with Family Research Council. And he was formerly with Department of Health and Human Services, like revolving door. They all kind of like jerk each other off. <laughs> Basically, there needs the need for a tax credit, which that had already been established like in the 1980s. You had like a $5,000 tax credit that National Council for Adoption had, had gotten that passed. And it's now up to over $14,000. You have a tax credit now of $14,000, which every time I see that meme go around about wishing the government would fund adoption instead of abortion, it's like they do. <laughs> it's 14, you get $14,000 tax credit. Like money's fungible. That's yeah. it, the government does fund adoption in many ways. Um, so there's a need for a tax credit. He wanted uh, obstacles removed for transracial adoptions. And, and he wanted states to be penalized that refused to remove the, remove the obstacles. Uh, they wanted to target the ICWA. Uh, they needed to increase adoption rates, uh, specifically of children born out of wedlock, because there are over 2 million couples wanting to adopt. Uh, and it comes down to the thing of not only does this make money, it saves money because a woman not going on government assistance, it is going to limit what the taxpayer has to pay. Right. And in turn, we can actually make money off of it. So it's a win-win. Screw yeah. biology, screw maternal yeah. connection. Screw who cares about all of that? Your baby, you know, is bonding to you in the womb. Stuff. And your womb should be the safest place in the world. And the maternal bond is right. so important and you've got to save your baby. And I think you have a quote in there, right? About yes. you have to walk a fine line where you don't incentivize abortion, but you make sure to promote adoption. So we're all about the maternal bond. And well, that's the, that's the, uh, the pro-life dilemma quote, the, 
you want to make a life-affirming choice, but once born, that baby deserves a better life than welfare and single parenting can offer. So you want to. So we got to switch it up. We encourage the woman to figure out we get what we how need, to we encourage her to attach to her child enough until it's time for her to give that child to better people to save money. To save money, yeah. yeah. So at the end of the day, it's just a complete mindfuck for a woman yes. that you are building her up so that you can get something from her at that point rather than offering her the support she needs now that she has attached to this child right. to raise them. Right. And and the correlations between that and the abortion industry are so strong in the sense that if you look at the bottom line, it is it makes much more sense for us to, as a country... Um, fund a place that can offer a $500 abortion than potentially 18 years of government aid. Yeah. And so it always comes back to the money part of this that we need to save the taxpayers money. But in adoption, you also get the chance to make money and build the economy. Like right. we have commodified this entire we thing in children. On, on average, domestic infant adoption is $40,000. So there's a lot of money. There's a lot of money to be made. Yes. Um, So in in this article, he also says that the fastest way to do all this is that, you know, you need to start privatizing adoption services. Uh, You need to start stemming the welfare roles, uh, specifically families that don't have fathers. And they want to re- he said that we needed to reject the language of the UN Charter on the Rights of the Child, which we are the only nation that has not ratified the UN Charter on the Rights of the Child. And in that, it does talk about how children have the right to their culture, their country, and unless it's neglect or abuse type situations, they also have the right to be raised by their biological families. Um, so it's, it's interesting that, that we are the only nation. You said there been. were a couple holdouts. It was Sudan and yeah. Iraq. Well, I'm maybe. not positive. I okay. can't remember, but it was But, but now we are officially. We are it. Yeah. It, there the were three ones. for a long time that didn't ratify. And I, I think like they would be countries that. That are kind of known for human rights violations. You yeah. don't necessarily want to be in that yeah. group. And then now we are the one holdout. That- um, also at this time. He's saying that we need to promote adoption as a good to unmarried teen moms. We need to encourage adoption in leadership roles. We need to promote, uh, oh, don't promote open adoptions. Because in the 80s and 90s, now you don't have, um, well, there's been, at this point, there have been enough studies that that the things need to change. Close adoptions were a little painful for some people. So, and also you can't incarcerate young mothers anymore. Um, even though like during this time, they're actually calling for a return of, of that era. So they were saying do promote open adoptions? At no, this point? they don't want to promote open adoptions. That that was one of the things. So they this want was, people to t- still choose closed adoptions? Yes. But was, on their own volition. This was specifically from Heritage Foundation is they don't want to promote open adoptions. Basically, it just should be like a clean break. Baby goes to two-parent home and mom moves on. So it's it's... You know, let's go back to 1950. Um, 
There were too many black children in foster care. Lawmakers needed to promote the adoption for these children. Um, adoption was a solution to many problems. So I, I, I think it starts to be like this panacea for so many issues, teen pregnancy, welfare queens, um, you name it. <laughs> it just became the catch-all that was going to solve all the world's problems. Yeah, it was, it was, adoption was going to be like this catch-all. Um, they need to start challenging church, churches to promote adoption. Adoptive parents need to be celebrated publicly. Uh, adoption needs to be seen as a national resource. You need a public relations campaign that targets pregnant minors. Targets minors. Yeah. Always a good um, part of a plan. <laughs> HHS needs to push adoption in hospitals who receive federal funding. And we need speedy judgments because children get more difficult to place with age. Which I personally... If it's truly about the child right, that's and the part, centering the child, yeah. then the age then part the age shouldn't, shouldn't matter. matter. because But they're not as much a blank slate in their raw material form right. as they get If older. adoption is truly about the adoptee, and people wanting to adopt are doing it because they're the last line of defense about a child have to, who doesn't yeah. have a home. Then age shouldn't be a thing. Nope. You shouldn't care when you start saying, "Well, we need it to be children that are closer to being infants and toddlers." No, it's not the adapter. Now you're talking about mm-hmm. a commodity. Yep, absolutely, it's commodity. Um. We need to start telling people illegitimacy leads to abuse and neglect, which, what was the the book you were talking about? Freakonomics. Yeah. That that it's going to, single motherhood leads to a crime rate. You hear that all the time to defend abortion. Which was used on me in the late 90s. What what happened? Do you, did you hear any of that? It was like, I can remember it was, if I was a single mom, like, I can remember them saying, my friends who had babies didn't love their babies as much as I loved my baby because their kids were going to grow up to be mm-hmm. on welfare forever um, or criminals. That was that was said. Like all of this stuff, like I'm I'm their Frankenstein. Like all of this stuff was going on. I had no idea, you know, I'm 15, right. 16 years old, but it's all I'm like on the receiving end. Well, I never believed all of this language. Like I couldn't. Like my mom was a single mom. She raised all three of us. Raising a single mom, all three different dads. Like I like that. I never believed that narrative. Like I, we, we were not living that narrative. Right. Do you know? You know what I mean? You know, I'm 18 and 19. I, I have no idea. Like I really, I don't remember too many friends, families. I guess that like I had friends, their parents were divorced. Um, but all of this, this whole like single moms or the scourge of the earth was, I, I hadn't been on this rodeo before. So, so you were just, mm-hmm. so it was just believing like, that. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like, well, I don't, I don't want, it was just another thing to add to I the definitely, shame I definitely know that, that now I'm going to raise a, a criminal that, is uh, on welfare. For yeah. Them. I was definitely told that my life wasn't just going to change. It was going to get much, much harder. Right. And 
I think that that there is so much um, fear because people people don't want to do the work. They don't want to actually have to support this. So they would much rather go to an economically stable two parent household, right. like have the child go there than be and raised wash by their you. hands of it. Yeah, and say we say we did, did a great, great thing. Yep, a hundred percent. And and there is definitely a lot of fear. And walk away from it, except you're leaving a traumatized woman and likely and, child as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so he ends it with adoption saves the taxpayer money. Yep. Adoption works. It saves vast amounts of money for the public. So that's what it, <laughs> that's what it all comes down to. Um, family preservation was too costly. Government funding reinforces an anti, this is his quote, government funding reinforces an anti-adoption bias by supporting family preservation programs. And like, Matthews Green said, that's the problem, right? Pregnancy centers were doing too much for women. Right. They were they were helping women too much. And so that was part of the problem. <laughs> right. They're helping her with her um Stop being so good at your loving we're, women, y'all. Right? Exactly. We're pro life. We it's shouldn't like, be loving women this well. Like you're messing up with our product. <laughs> All right, nineteen ninety-seven, you have the Adoption and Safe Families Act and and Bill Pierce with the National Council for Adoption behind this one as well. The father of adoption. He's fathering way too many children. Quoted as the father of adoption. I just think, seriously, he needs to stop. I mean, I get that he's pro-life. He was spreading his seed. But, like, I get that he's pro-life. And this is going to be based on our audience because this is the first time we've mentioned him in this run-through. But in the three-hour-long version of this, he was the father of everything. He was the father of everything. Multiple pages. He was the father of everything. Father of all the things. I was like, I'm going to be, like, seriously, I am pro-life. But sometimes you just need to wrap it up, But also, Pierce, close your legs, man. (laughs) Like, close your legs, man. Close your legs, Pierce. <laughs> Bill Pierce was the National Council for Adoption. He was formerly Executive Director of Child Welfare League of America. Was behind everything. All in the, the 1990s. things. All, all the things. things. Mm-hmm. He's the father. He's the father of all the things. So, 1997, we have the Adoption and Safe Families Act. Um, private agencies were given contracts with foster care services, so like Bethany Christian Services. Um, Reunification after uh, Adoption and Safe Families Act is passed for the first time in decades. Reunification and foster care is under fifty percent. Um, currently, today, there has been an increase in children into the foster care system, <clears throat> which has outpaced the adoption rates. So, the whole point of this act in in nineteen ninety seven is to move these kids out of foster care. They incentivized the states. I think it was like $4,000 for every adoption of these kids out of foster care. It was supposed to move children out of foster care into more permanent situations through adoption. Except um, there's been an increase in the children. Now we've created this market. Right. So over the last 20-something years, there's been an increase of the children in the foster care system. And it's so much of an increase that it's actually outpaced the adoption rates out of on. And we said family preservation was too costly, but the children of poor and black families were fast tracked to adoption. Um, in 1997, at the same time we're doing the Adoption and Safe Families Act, uh, Family Research Council and CareNet. And CareNet is and and this is where you need to add the point. We have been told this whole time that. The reason we are so pro-adoption in the pro-life movement is because it stops abortions. 
Yes. And yet you have studies that show and the women you talk to that abortion was never even considered. Mm -hmm. However, pro-life leaders and organizations who have known for a very long time that these are not two that this adoption is not the solution and abortion are not alternatives yet at the same time as you've mm-hmm. also said which i think is really really important we are creating such a pro-choice culture because of the number of adoptees and birth mothers who Ooh. say if i had it to do over again i would have had an abortion because yes. i did not realize the the trauma and this feeling that yes. i was gonna have that this was going to be a and, and the thing trauma. is like i want to make it very clear we're in no way doing this like, you know, and I think that's some of the backlash we're going to get that you're you're promoting abortion through this no. because you're telling women how badly and it's going to hurt. I will give some quotes. No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> this is something where it is. There has to be a better way. There has yes. to be mm-hmm. a third way we that is family preservation to, focused. We have to be community focused. And the pro-life and movement needs to be at mothers. the front of this, families. at the front of this, because if we keep going down this road, we are just creating more and more pro-choice people because of the trauma that they experienced mm-hmm. through adoption. And so the only way for the pro-life movement to do this successfully, to create this, you know, post-row culture and this pro-life um, culture is to focus on family preservation, which, yeah, it's costly. And but guess what? It's worth it. And you that's do it. where I'm at. Like, I don't even... I personally don't get into the abortion arguments anymore because I'm just so focused. Well, because how can you tell people who have this lived experience and this amount of trauma that they're wrong for wanting to avoid that? Like, I, I completely understand why a woman would rather have an abortion than than place for adoption. It makes sense to me. Now that I've gone through it, I like. Yeah, I hear it all the time. And both I of them understand. I understand. Both of them are such I shitty options, and that's are. the thing. Like, we have to give women better options. I don't know yes. what I would have done, but I wouldn't have done this. Yeah, yes. this would not have yes. been done again. Yes. I, and if yes. I ever have, I mean, I'm old now, but if I had ever faced this situation again, I don't know what I would have done, but I wouldn't have done this. Like, it's just, it's too. Too much no. trauma. No. Too much to bear. It's too big a sacrifice. Like, yeah. No. Oh, I I, 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 yeah, I no. would have, I don't know, I'd go out on the streets and. Yeah, I would have figured something out. Still, I, I don't know. I would have figured it out. So, in 97, so our dear friends at Family Research Council and CareNet, which is, um, has like, what, 1,100 affiliate crisis pregnancy centers, which... You know, that was the first crisis center that I was sent to where the counselor would only discuss adoption with me. And it was, well, all you have is love. Where are you going to give a baby? And that's all she would discuss. I found out years later that was a CareNet affiliate. So this message has been this message had been disseminated mm-hmm. to so many places. To so so many places. yeah, we have the legislative side, we have the marketing side, and then we, now it and is we have to target the minors. Target so, the minors, yeah. Yes. And so now it's through churches, through schools. What's the app? Adopt Ed. Oh, yeah, Gladney has Adopt Ed, where they have the app where the, they can the practice girl going can through. download on her phone and walk through the adoption process of. Having you get to choose parenting and it's, oh, all these terrible things are going to happen. Or you get to choose adoption where you actually have to pick a family. Like they they give you two options of real life adoptive, like prospective adoptive parents. It's a real video where you have to like 
pick the family and, and, you know, then you get to see all your wildest dreams come true. Like, which you is know, false. After, which is oh, false. absolutely. But, but walking through a weird virtual reality, right. like Sims version this, of adoption you know, is wild. 15 year old, they have a phone. They, they could, they download can download, the which app. is insane to me that <laughs> they're just targeting minors, which tells you. Just like how when Planned Parenthood is giving you birth control, they want it to fail because they'll create customers. And then like these like pro-life communities also want the same birth control to fail because they want customers. I don't think the average layperson realizes how much that they're because we have all been so brainwashed by this and think it's completely the norm. And so having this shift in consciousness all of a sudden and realizing like, Oh my gosh, like this is an industry just like the abortion industry is an industry and you are using the exact same tactics and you're getting in through the movement, the schools, the pregnancy resource centers, legislatively, like all of these different elements, hospitals, the medical community. I mean, all of it is right there to push us in one direction like sheep, like we don't know what's going on. And the fact that the pro-life movement has not been critical because if you are critical, you must love abortion, which is (laughs) bullshit. Which... You know, having grown up pro-life, I grew up going to the marches. I grew up seeing the literature around the house and everything. I stayed silent about my trauma for a very long time because I lived in this fear that if I talked about how horrible it felt to live without my child, that I might influence another woman to have an abortion. Yep. I'm not going to live under that anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm at the point every woman deserves an informed choice and I'm not in control. And if we don't want her to have an abortion, we have to do better. We need a better, more supportive society. We need that third option that's actually supporting women to parenting. But we're not going to get it. No. And when, yeah, yeah, when we think about the choices, you have abortion, adoption, or parenting, and so much focus is put on abortion and adoption, but there's very little on parenting because it's the one that costs money and doesn't make money. It doesn't make money. Like, you're right. It's not an equal option because it's hard. Like, I don't, we've talked about this, or not we have, but I've talked about this to other people where parenting on your own is really recent. Right? right? People were parented in communities. People had communities. Like, it takes and a village. <laughs> like, you know, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps parenting. And that's, I'm a mom of, you know, I've had three subsequent children. I'm in my forties. I still need like my mother community yes. to help me. And I just, we've lost such a sense of community and motherhood and yep. parenting. Yes. And even that, like, we can't get into this now, but even parenting and like the com- competitiveness with other moms, and yes. we've forgotten that we're community, right. and instead we're competition. We are not. Do you know what I mean? And it's like that's not okay, <laughs> right. right? Like we're we're not in competition, but we are supposed to be we in community. Need to be lifting each other, up. and that's and that, the thing. And that's even when a mother has an unplanned yes. pregnancy, we all need the to time, be lifting her up, and yes. encouraging her. Absolutely. So yeah, it's not equal. It's not an equal choice. So in, in 1997, they, they have this study and uh, the study was con- conducted and published in 2000. And it was basically how to talk moms into placing their babies for adoption. At the time, uh, adoption rates, adoption rates had gone at the peak at the baby scoop era. It was about 20% of all pregnancies uh, ended with an adoption. By the late 1990s, it's at 1%. 
even with all of this this stuff over from the mid 1990s to today, it's still at one percent. Mm-hmm. So all of these resources, all of this, all of these acts, all of this stuff has not even changed the mm-hmm. adoption rate to today. So it's like we've got to do, we've got to do. It hasn't lowered the abortion rate. Like mm-hmm. we've got to be better. We've got to do better. So. Yeah. Rates were at 1%, close to what they are today. Family Research Council got Kenny and Associates, who is a, it's a marketing consultant agency. Uh, they're pioneers in emotional research to conduct the study. The, the problem was expectant moms saw adoption as being deceptive and it was abandonment. And the, that perception needed to change in order to specifically increase adoptions. So this whole study is basically how do we start getting these unwed mothers Mm -hmm. to choose adoption because they're seeing it as deceptive and abandonment. We need to get them to see it as, you know, we left the days of shame. Now we need to have the the brave and selfless. Yeah. How are we going to do that? Um, As far as abortion, abortion I mean, they're they're clear as can be. Abortion was not the alternative to adoption. And it's quoted that it was a two-step process. The first first step in the process was to stay pregnant or to have an abortion. The second step in the process was to parent or place for adoption. And they're quoted as saying, because the choices in the second stage of decision-making are between placing a child for adoption and raising the child herself, counselors need not fear that they will push their client towards abortion. Adoption advocacy should not be positioned against abortion. In the psychology that drives decisions about adoption, adoption really does not compete with abortion. It is competing with the emotionally compelling alternative to parenting the child. Yes. While women make the initial decision of life or death quickly, decisions of whether to parent the baby may take months. Therefore, a long window of opportunity is available to reach these women with messages that will motivate them to consider adoption. Given that women reach a decision about abortion separate from a decision about parenting, counselors should not fear that they would encourage abortion by encouraging the consideration of adoption or laying out the implications of trying to raise a child alone. Boom. Yeah. Right right there. They know it. Stop. Stop with the whole... Well, Adoption is a loving option. Yeah. Not only do they know it, they one of the popular pro-adoption sites that's basically a marketing site for Be Brave and Strong and all that, like the testimonies on that very site, they don't even edit out the fact that women yes. say, I was planning on parenting until... A nurse or somebody yes. else in my life. Do you want to? Do you want to say pitch? Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> um, maybe. I'm not brave enough to love saying who it is. I know. So like, I'm not I brave that, enough. To. <laughs> so yeah. I think that they. I'm not, not love either. But I'm I can't brave. believe that they like. Did you not catch that? That basically this whole testimony yeah. straight up says yeah. she was not adoption minded. You coerced her, manipulated so, her into becoming adoption minded. There's so many testimonies where. The, the moms just flat out say, well, I didn't want an abortion. I had planned to parent. But then then my eyes were opened. Mm-hmm. You know, this person or that person or this situation yeah. or that situation, you know, showed me that. that I, I, was, I was reminded what a piece of shit I am. And so I needed <laughs> to turn the baby over to someone no. who, who's yeah. better than me because I'm a piece of shit. Because I'm a piece of shit. Like, yeah. how is that pro-life? 
Other, um, other golden quotes from this study, uh, the distinguishing characteristic that enables women to choose adoption is selflessness, the selflessness associated with emotional maturity. Our research found that the more emotionally mature a woman is, the less selfish she is and the more likely she is to be open to adoption. Emotionally mature women are able to see that adoption can strike a balance between their personal needs and the needs of their children. So these are not, they're not targeting women that they perceive to be abusive or neglectful. And they're not mm-hmm. targeting women who are deciding on abortions. They're targeting women who would make good mothers. Who were like who, me. Who are emotionally mature they're enough. Like me. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm and just saying, like, 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 the like, two of us. Like, they were super resourceful yeah. and we just didn't have one thing. So then, then you look like, at you know resources. Yeah, right. We were resourceful, but we were without resources. Right. <laughs> and yet, when that same argument is applied to abortion, and we see that Gutmacher says it's like over 60 or 70% of women choose abortion because of financial that constraints. Or social like, support Yeah, issues. and we're like, that's not okay. We yeah. need to do something we about that. We need to come alongside women, give them the social support, the financial unless support comes, to get them through. Unless it comes to adoption. And then suddenly it completely turns around and that's the very reason that we're, we are going to corner you into this choice. Yes. And make you feel like crap, like you have no other option. Yes. Um, it, they say, in choosing their children's needs over their own, those women are not only making a wise decision, but defeating selfishness and evil within themselves. The client is proving her character by relinquishing her child. Adoption can be a type of redemption for a mother by transforming personal failure into triumph. Adoption is a choice made by a courageous and loving mother, a heroic act of selflessness that may serve to redeem her character. Adoption creates That's... a family. The mother herself is adopting a family for her child. Wait, so here's the thing. The redeeming her character part, it's like, wait a minute, she had sex and got pregnant and that makes her a bad person? There's then tons of people. she has to lose her child for the rest of her, her life. life. That is like a whole, like, like just like, there are other women out there who have sex and didn't get pregnant. What, 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 how do they redeem their characters? I mean, I'm doing Let's tell me. quotes. There are other sins. There, there. That you don't lose your child for the rest of your life. life. But this is where this will redeem your character. Right. Like, I was like, the hell? Like, I just. And your very maternal bond with your child is so, evil and must so be taken care of. For the, for the girls that, you know, shoplifted in high school. Yeah. Should they have given their children away like, to redeem all the, their character Like, all those things. Well, and it's the craziest thing in the world because you sit there and like redeem their like their what the awful sin of getting pregnant. Like I don't understand. I know horrible people who are married that have gotten pregnant. Their character needs to be redeemed too. How do we redeem their character? Do we take their children as well? I know some straight up awful people that have children within marriage. How? Right? Like what the heck? That's so gross. That's so gross. Well, this study goes on basically to be disseminated to the entire country. Um, in 2000, you have the Infant Adoption Awareness Act, which was the child of who? Oh, God. No. <laughs> yeah, Bill, Pierce. Bill Pierce. Oh, Billy Boy. Slick Willie Pierce. He was the father. <laughs> he was the father of all the things. Bill led the charge when he conceived and then helped get past the Infant Adoption Awareness Act. 
part of the Children's Health Act of 2000. Bill was a proud parent of the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act of 1994, which reduced obstacles to transracial adoption. Bill helped to establish and expand the tax credit for adoption expenses and the Employer-Based Adoption Assistance Program. Um, and this was this was a quote, like, he passed away in 2004. And, uh, Bill Pierce? Yeah. Oh, well. And uh, this, this was a quote from an article that said, the adoption and right to life movement have lost a true and valuable friend. What? So yeah, they did because yeah. he was lifting them up and building up. Like, yeah. So and he I was mean, a, wasn't a friend to moms. You know, the, the revolving door in, in a lot of these organizations in D.C. between the adoption entities and the pro-life groups. Mm-hmm. Um and they have their hands into their pockets. And that's why the pro-life movement has to be at the forefront of this. Like, every bit of this, as history keeps going, I mean, like, we are going to see the fruits of this. We are going to see the trauma, especially as people connect online and more adoptees come out and start telling their stories. Like, we are going to see the wreckage of this quick fix yeah. because we didn't want to put the time and money into family preservation. You have all these reunions going on. Um, where a lot of some states, I don't want to say a lot of states, some states have uh, made it to where where adoptees do have a right to see their original birth certificate. So you have a lot of people reuniting through that way, but you have a lot of people reuniting through DNA testing. Um, And stories are being told. People are finding out a lot of stuff. They're organizing. Yeah. Yeah. And, And I think that that ultimately, it is going to be the adoptees that stop this. The it is exactly. going to be going their to be voice the at the forefront and the pro-life movement is going to look like trash for, for never even addressing it. And I think we were a huge part of that for the longest time because you don't know what you don't know and you're told it's this wonderful thing. I, and I, I, I was a part of it. I was a yeah. part of it. I, I was in there like telling people and they and told me. You were a victim of it and a part of it. Perfect. I was a tool of my yes. own oppression. Yes. Like, hello. I mean, gosh, I all mean, kinds of ways. When I'm, I'm going through this and the agent says, oh, well, adoption is not like what it used to be, you know, and I'm like, uh, what? You know, but I didn't feel that I had right at and that then point to in say In your anything. experience, what you've been through, that became the catalyst for you looking into it and becoming vocally family preservation and doing all this work and doing all yeah. this research. And now... You're working with SOS, right? Yes. Which is a phenomenal group that really works to help mothers you know, who and, do not. With SOS, the thing is, like, people have said, oh, we, we bully moms into parenting their own children. I mean, the moms come to you. Yeah, that we never reach out to moms. Moms come to us. Um, and with SOS, Saving Our Sisters, it's a it's a group. It's all birth moms. We've had adoptees on the board right now. It's, it's mm-hmm. all moms. Um, but basically moms come to saving our sisters. A lot of them come because they've signed termination papers and they want to revoke. And, and so saving our sisters walks them through that process, but it's also moms will come to saving our sisters. Basically they want to know more about adoption and they're not being told it from the agencies. You're not getting the studies. You're not you're finding not, out that open adoptions can become not, closed adoptions real quick, and oh you have yeah, no you're not legal recourse. These open adoptions that they're saying, "Oh, you'll get all this." You're not learning that when you're yeah. talking to the adoption agency and they're taking notes about all the reasons that you want to choose adoption for your child. The second that you decide to revoke, they're going to call CPS and give them all these well, reasons. I'm, I'm going to say 
I don't know for sure. Oh, because they're anonymous. That they're calling CPS, but it's a little convenient. A crazy that coincidence that every these, time a woman wants to revoke, that they... these women do revoke their consent to the adoption, that all of a sudden, like, a CPS case is opened up. Uh, yeah, and, and they have reason to believe she's unfit after she's just divulged all this. And I think yeah. that's where SOS warning women, don't give them and that information. These moms with the CPS cases opened on them... Not a mom has ever lost her child to CPS. Like, these are completely... Mm-hmm. They fight them. Yeah. They, these are ridiculous situations. Yeah. One of them, the mom um, was on a blood pressure medication, which is known to do, like, a, a false positive. Mm-hmm. And and CPS ends up, you know, getting called on her. Mm-hmm. It, it was, it it's was just crazy because a lot of times these adoption agencies have the information. And so there needs to be a group, and I'm glad you guys are doing it, who are kind of warning women, if you're going down this adoption path, here right. are the things to look and out for. Thing, be like, smart about it. We don't tell moms, this is what you have to do. Like, I, I, I that's not me. That's not anybody mm-hmm. on the board. Like, I'm not going to tell. I, you deserve an informed choice. Yep. That means parenting, abortion, adoption. I don't care. It, it's not... It's not me that has to make that decision and has to live with that decision. But just like with abortion, we want women seeing sonograms. We want them to know that the health violations against this abortion Mm -hmm. clinic, like all these other things, right? And when it comes to adoption, it's rainbows and unicorns. We're not going to tell you any of the stuff that can go sideways. Anybody that has a narrative that goes against that, they're angry, they're bitter, they're crazy, they had a bad experience. Mm -hmm. Not all, like, we're going to push you... You know, we're going to block you from our page. We're going to delete all your comments. You don't get a voice. Yeah. But there's so many of us yeah. that are, you need to be informed. And God, that's the same thing that happens with abortion, right? On the Shout Your Abortion pages, the uh-huh. second a woman says, I want to shout my story. I regret my abortion. I don't oh. want that. They're immediately deleted and blocked from the page too. Like yep. they have huh. to keep the echo chamber very, very pure in the way they do things. Yep. And so... I just, the correlations do not stop. And at the end of the day, we have to give women the opportunity to actually discuss these things, to be fully informed about them, to make a decision with their eyes wide open. Maybe adoption still is the the best choice for you. I think of all the moms, what SOS is probably assisted in some way or another a thousand moms to date. And I think of those maybe two or three. And I'm personal friends with one of those moms on Facebook. Who chose adoption anyway. She, yes. I, like, But I'm you not, need to know the machine you're up against. You, you need, need to, to know, know the history. Right. You need to know that this is something that started 100 and years before even you were born. She is going to need community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's going to need a voice because it's tough. Yeah. It is tough to live this life. And moms need to be informed of that. So... Um, so we, we have the Infant Adoption Awareness Act of, of 2000. It was legislation that required DHS, DHHS to award grants to adoption organizations to develop and implement programs to train everybody. Basically, if you come in contact with a pregnant woman, you're, you're getting trained. So it was eligible health care centers, um, but they were they were being provided adoption information and referrals to pregnant women on an equal basis with all other courses of action included in non-directive counseling for pregnant women. So it was uh, healthcare clinics, hospitals, crisis pregnancy centers, uh, welfare agencies. Basically, if you come in contact with somebody that's pregnant, you're you were going to get this training. 
Um, it was the National Council for Adoption that benefited from the lion's share of this grant money. So the first year that it's implemented, uh, $8.5 million was allotted. They received $6 million. Uh, and the National wow. Council for Adoption has trained over 20,000 individuals to date with this. Now, I'm not sure what's being done today. I haven't found recent uh, training from this act. Like the last stuff I could find was like in 2012. And then it just seems to like fall off the radar. So I'm not sure what today, like what healthcare agencies are being but the crazy thing, especially in the pregnancy center world, there is so much that is just passed down. I was taught this way, yeah. so I'm going to teach these people this right. way. And it so goes into my I'm training. Sure and this had enough grip <clears throat> in culture at that the it time can be that, word of mouth. Just yeah, moved, you know, moved. On. And this was the one that Gutmacher went against, right? Yes. Yeah. So in 2004, I say Gutmacher is it? I think it could be there. So, but Gutmacher <laughs> was an arm of Planned Parenthood, so a very pro-choice organization. And so, yeah, when you see that they go against it, you're like watching two pit bulls, like yes, basically yes. wrestle over something. It's crazy, you're watching like these two industries. Yeah, because it's like you're taking like money it. from us, we're taking money from you, and I like we don't have a dog in this fight. I think both are trash. So. <laughs> Yeah, tell us about the Gutmacher so, study. So Gutmacher, Gutmacher Institute, uh, they made a complaint August 11, 2004, in an article It's called Out of Compliance Implementing the Infant Adoption Awareness Act. Um, their major complaints, uh, a fundamental complaint raised by a number of participants. These are the people that are receiving this training from the Infant Adoption Awareness Act. Uh, the trainer promoted tactics and techniques to persuade the client to choose adoption. They, number one, discouraged abortion. Two, overly promoted adoption. They highlighted the difficulties of parenting. They encouraged counselors to choose the best option for clients. Uh, Child-centered counseling that informed clients that adoption was the good choice for the child. Counselors were given tips and techniques to wear down women's resistance to adoption. Always a good method. <laughs> yeah, wear down women's resistance. Wear down women's resistance. This is non-directive, right? Counselors were given tips and techniques to make women proud of the adoption choice and to convince them that it was the better choice. Counselors were encouraged to identify clients as deluded for wanting another option. The curriculum encouraged adoption by placing value judgments both implicitly and explicitly. A number of participants noted a hostile training environment that left them feeling uncomfortable and unsafe. The training had religious overtones and some participants said the training included prayer. Participants stated that those training represented uh, represented Christian and Mormon adoption agencies. Comments were made that there was the, an importance of children being placed in good Christian homes. And to me, this is this would be it was National Council for Adoption who originally was like this conglomerate of like adoption agencies. They've created policy that is then legislated. It becomes an act. And then they receive the monies to disseminate all this program. But see, here's the thing. Everything that you just read off to the average pro-lifer, who I would say oftentimes is more conservative, is probably religious, like definitely not all of us, right? But that's a big chunk. They would hear that and be like, this is oh. awesome. Great. That's that's the one I want to put my money on. Like, I, I totally support everything that's happening. The problem is just because this 
other trash side that is promoting abortion is against this that doesn't make this good that doesn't automatically by default make it good to be non-directive counseling then it needs to be non-directive counseling you're telling people you have three choices you have parenting you have abortion you have adoption these are subjective measures subjective yeah but it's clearly biased towards adoption only and not towards parenting right so it's just interesting that the same organization that creates the act also receives the funding of the act and then gets to carry out the act. Yeah. And if that were if that were planned parenthood, people would be raising hell. Yeah. But with this it's oh, we're okay. told not to question it. And for so long I was there. I didn't even question it. I didn't look into it. And thankfully, you and Marcia have really opened my eyes to it as first moms. <laughs> and so, like, <laughs> seeing it from that perspective and just realizing we could be doing so much better, I think that that has to be the goal. And I think we have to know the history. We have to take a critical look at it as a pro-life movement. I think that is how, like, there are so many women and children who are waiting for this, for for the pro life movement to acknowledge how toxic this is and how manipulated women were and how targeted they were and how we actively you know, wore down you their know resistance. Why I used to be in the pro life movement, but learning all of this, yeah, I wouldn't want anything to do with it. I don't want to touch it. I I'm out. No, it to this point it <clears throat> scares me even because I help so many women find resources who are abortion vulnerable. And now I even question the pregnancy resource centers I'm sending them to because are they, yeah, they might well, be talked out of abortion, but are they going to be coerced into an adoption have, they don't want? The Choose Life tags, which I had a Choose Life tag. I had a Choose I Life tag. I thought they were going to crisis centers <laughs> to help mom yeah. parent their children. I had no idea that it goes to Choose Life America, yeah. which promotes, that's all they do, promotes adoption. They don't promote parenting. They prom- promote adoption. So... In order for a crisis center to get grant money from Choose Life America, they have to do training on adoption. To and, and they have adoption. to make they have to make that call. Second a woman walks through the door, there are probably better parents out there for your child. And we are deciding that you are unfit and so we should push you in this direction, right? I mean, and, and everything about it, you are there for assistance, for resources. So you are going to tell them what it is that you need. And the solution is not take my baby away and provide these things to it. It is provide these things so that I can care for my child. Like, again, if we center the child, which is what we should be doing in every bit of our activism, the most innocent, vulnerable party here, and center the woman. Well, and also center the child not... Not in this way, where it's like you have to dissociate oh, well, from your child. Totally agree. So right. when I say center the child, I think knowing the studies that are coming out now and the biological connection between a parent and a child, um, that even if a mother is is working a ton or you know not considered the perfect two-parent home, all this other stuff, like having that biological connection is so vitally important that the best thing for a child is to have that option. And it's not always an option. There are going to be times right. where there it's not are possible. There going to be kids who can't stay with their biological There are not families. enough of them to create this but industry, though, and we, that's the right, problem. Exactly. And so I had said 
earlier, I don't even know if it was yesterday, all the days are one day now. So I don't even know. But I had said, I used to say all the time, like when it comes to military, like we strong military that we don't use. And then I even said, here's the thing. I don't, whether abortion is legal or not, there's, they're still going to be happening because we don't get to the root of the desperation women are feeling. So like keep abortion clinics open, but keep them empty. And that was such a naive thing to say. And especially now that I understand more about the anti-war movement and stuff, when you have an $18 billion jet, you're going to want to use it. You're going to want to use it. And the same with the abortion industry. As long as it exists, people are, there is a market now. We have to, you know, so, so keep the doors filled. With, with that, with the adoption you, industry. saying make it illegal? Are you saying we need to have a better support system? Oh, I'm saying it should be unthinkable and unnecessary, right? That's our goal. But as long as abortion clinics are in every city and low-income areas and stuff, like then the industry itself will market to these communities, will target people to fill their centers or their clinics. The same thing is true with adoption. with adoption. They are not going to just be there They're for just the small around the small percentage where with, with their light bill going right, up and where their, their adoption right. where adoption is the necessary evil in this case. As long as they continue functioning in this way, they will create a market for it. Not everybody involved in this has a good heart and is doing it for the right reasons. I would argue that a lot of people are doing it telling themselves it's for the right reasons, but they're also getting a nice paycheck out of it. And so could you give us the rundown real quick that you have of all of the different places? Yeah, can I do the the second study and and my Gladly stuff? Do I have a second? We're we're after an hour, so we now have five podcast listeners, but that's okay. okay. They're interested (laughs) in this part. So if you have like an important part you need to add. All right, in 2007, Family Research Council and National Council for Adoption team up with Kenny again and create uh, a study called Birth Mother, Good Mother, Her Story of Heroic Redemption. Quotes from the study. Birth mothers are in denial about their immaturity and lack of readiness to parent the child. Denial allows them to delay their decision hoping that everything will work out and that they can keep their babies. She is hoping for a support system. She must overcome her denial and acknowledge her true situation. Birth mothers want to feel good about themselves and believe in their competence and worth as people. They begin to see that placing their children with loving couples is what it means for them to be good mothers. They redeem themselves, transforming their mistake into positive outcomes. They make a supreme sacrifice, which in turn makes up for their mistakes. Adoption carries them from failure and despair to heroic achievement. Adoption allows them to recover their self-esteem, restore their identity, and renew their dreams and goals. Uh, A birth mother can forego single motherhood and have a family when she is married and finished with school. Um, And then we have uh, Gladney today. So the Gladney Center for Adoption, you had National Council for Adoption that started in 1980 by Gladney Executive. Then you reach the moms through Brave Love, and Gladney helped to get Brave Love going. So uh, Brave Love is an organization that promotes adoption and looks to increase infant adoptions uh, by conveying the heroism and bravery of birth moms. It was started with the help of Gladney in 2012. Um, So their affiliates are Gladney, Bethany, Lifeline, Abiding Love, Lutheran Family and Children's Services, Nightlight, Catholic Charities, and Crisis Pregnancy Outreach. But basically, this is the way 
Uh, you've got National Council for Adoption doing all the legislative stuff. You have Brave Love that is, you know, getting the moms. Then you have Gladney University where they provide uh, adoptive parents with education and support, but they also provide medical professionals, counselors, social service advocates, and community members with continuing edu uh, adoption education. You have Adopt Ed that goes into high schools and does presentations on the adoption option, and they have an app that targets high school students. And then their most recently acquired um, company was adoption.com, which is the largest adoption related website in the world with over 2 million articles about adoption. Um, so you've got Gladney that pretty much has all their bases covered from, from legislative to immersing the internet with the adoption, the positive adoption narrative. Um, and then you wanted to do all the companies. The, the money, yeah, just real quick, the money to be made. Because I think that if we are constantly looking at the abortion industry and saying this comes down to the bottom dollar, right? Like this is about the money being made. I think we have to acknowledge all the different ways that money is being made in the adoption industry as well. Okay. So the adoption umbrella... These are organizations and, and jobs, basically, that rely on domestic infant adoption today. You have media platforms such as adoption.com, and they I think they have over 400,000 like, paying members. There's like a membership thing with them. You have the adoption agencies. You have matching agencies and services, which was like what, what Marcia had used, where basically they match... The expectant moms with the prospective adoptive parents and then they move them on to the agency to finalize everything you have consultants you have profile book creators it costs in the area of like fifteen hundred dollars now to just create your you know adoptive parent book for these moms to see uh, you have marketing you have maternity homes you have attorneys you have birth mom coaches you have adoption doulas you have post-adoption support, you have adopting and birth mom consultants, you have pro-life organizations, you have promoters such as Brave Love, you have policymakers such as National Council for Adoption, you have loan and grant organizations who are grants sending grants to these to adoptive parents and loans to adoptive parents. You have authors who are writing books about all of this, you have church organizations, you have crisis pregnancy centers who are getting grants. And such from, for instance, the GS Life tag. <laughs> and the average domestic infant adoption is $40,000. Wow. So there you go. $40,000 that a lot of churches will raise the money for the $30,000 as opposed to, or yeah. $40,000 as opposed to for raising just, it. For sometimes even a fraction. Saving our sisters, I think what the average. It, it takes, it's it's around $1,000 usually to help for a mom. us to help a mom just be able, a lot of these moms yep. don't have maternity leave. There yep. are moms who are considering adoption because they don't have anywhere for their child to be for the first six weeks of life because daycares won't take them for six weeks and they don't have maternity leave. So that alone is enough reason. So, and, uh, so yeah. sometimes, you know. And the church is stepping up in this place, especially like faith communities who are all about you know, being conservative, smaller government, things like that. Okay, then like 
do something. As you said, they're they're tax-exempt organizations. So the fact that they can't step up and help a woman for six weeks so yeah. that she can preserve her family, like... Yeah. And they'll, yeah, and they'll raise that money. They'll raise more than that. Yeah. I can't, like, I always say, if I would have had a place to live and room to breathe, yeah, even, like, a month of just being like, okay, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I was not looking out. I, I did not want a handout. I'm a very independent person. Yes. Like, I, I wanted to parent my child independently. But if someone would have helped me. I needed, I needed a window. I just needed yeah. a window yeah. of help. And, yep. and that was it. That was it. And, and so I, and I would have gone on with my life and I would have turned back around and helped the woman behind me yeah. that needed the same thing, which is what I'm doing now. I wasn't helped, but I think that's probably, you know, put more fire under me. That's to, to help. help others. Yep. That's what that's in here. But I think that we always talk about when it comes to abortion, listening to post-abortive women, that they're the ones who are going to tell us how to stop this in the yep. future, right? Like, listen to women, listen to what they're saying. And I think the same has to be true when it comes to adoption. There is a problem here. Nobody's talking about the problem. Nobody's giving a critical eye to the ethics of it. And there are birth mothers here who are telling you exactly what they needed. And so we've got to step up. We have to form a coalition within the pro-life movement to step up and address this because we're literally working against a machine so thank you so much for giving us the full history Absolutely. of this so that we understand the cogs in this machine. And there's so much more. This is such there's a, so much more this and is so such an abbreviated <laughs> I will I will have this is an abbreviated to <laughs> tell you there are layers to this. Adoption is like an ogre. It has layers, just like an onion. <laughs> this is definitely, yeah, the the kind of highlights done um micro machine style uh of all of it. So we will <laughs> have it doesn't help that like you know, we had like three hours. Three hours worth of material, but who would have hung with us for that long? Right. Thanks to everybody who hung with us for yes, whatever we're at, hour and something now. Uh, we will can post I plug, citations. Can I plug quickly? Of course. All right. My page, Family Preservation Project. I, I get resources from anywhere and everywhere I can to help moms parent and then saving our sisters. So moms who are looking for adoption information or moms who have signed away their rights and they do have a revocation window, Saving Our Sisters can walk them through that how, how to do the revocation process. Yeah, which is vitally important. And then we are going to do a future episode. We've somehow managed to talk all weekend and run out of time to do this, but we're going to also do one on the laws in certain states. And I mean, incredibly like exploitative laws that are preying on vulnerable women. And I believe that'll actually end up Maybe being, you know what? I keep saying that. We're going to be able to do a short podcast. No, we're not. That's a lie. So for our next four-hour podcast, um, we will be talking about all the different laws in different states so that people, especially in particular states, can put pressure on their legislators to make sure that this is being done correctly. In the, the most ethical way. The most ethical way. That's, that is literally all we're asking for. So thank you to everybody who listened. But the doctor-